Okay, good evening, everybody. How are you tonight? It's good to see you. So I wore my Dodgers jersey tonight. I did that to remind you of what's important. Now, the Dodgers are not as important as God, Jesus, the church, your wife, husband, or children. But right after that. And uh, I know that we're all Dodger fans here, right, right, Marlon? Marlon's a Dodgers fan. Yeah, this, this could be our year, Marlon. So uh, I want to introduce somebody to you that I don't think has been introduced yet. Uh, she recently moved here, sister from the uh, Palm Springs area. She moved here uh, for a very good reason, because she's marrying one of our brothers here, uh, Maurice Baseman. They're getting married at the end of the month. We're very excited to have her, Glendy Del Castillo, right here. Stand up, Glendy. And that is Maurice. Uh, do you want to wave there by Maurice? Yeah. So they're getting married just a little over two weeks. So, yeah, they need some, they need some prayers. So that's good. So to introduce our lesson tonight, it is on discipling relationships. And actually, I'm going to be sharing some of my time with uh, Les Callahan. He's going to be coming up here in a few minutes and sharing personally as well. But I want to start with a... Uh, sort of a question, discussion, have you ever wondered where you came from? Yeah, well, there's at least one person has. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, what is your, your ancestry? You know, where do your peeps come from? You know, and you can go far back, you know, there's uh, Ancestry.com, and you can go on there and figure out where your family came from and all that. So I've done a little bit of that. So I want to share some of that with you. So the, the family name, the Neyland family name, comes from a town in Wales called Neyland. So Google it, Neyland, Wales. It's a small town, but it's a town nonetheless. And so we assume that somewhere, we are Welsh uh, in our tradition there, so we assume somewhere along the line that Somebody adopted the name of that town, and we became Neelands. Uh, it goes on from there. Uh, some of you also might know that my name is Robert Reese Neeland, and I am actually Robert Reese Neeland Seventh. Did you know that? So there's been seven generations in a row. This goes back to the middle of the 1800s, where the oldest son has been named Robert Reese. And so uh, it's uh, just a tradition. I dared not, you know, uh, you know, spoil that. So when my oldest son, Robbie, came along, and he's Robert Reese Neal in the 8th, and then I have a grandson, Robert Reese Neal in the ninth, or as we like to call him, Niner. We call him Niner. But anyway, it's a, it's a long tradition, right? It's kind of it's cool. Somebody asked me one time, is, you know, is, is your family really important? Is that why... You keep naming the children Robert Reese, and I go, no, but we desperately want to be. <laughs> and so we figure sometime, if we ever get important, then it's going to be a nice thing to have that, the Robert Reese Neeland thing. So, so my son, Robbie, he uh, has worked a lot on Ancestry.com. He's actually really into it, so he shared it with all of us. 
it does go back actually the mid-1800s. The first Robert Reese Nealon uh, lived in Texas, outside of uh, Greenville, Texas. And uh, actually, shortly uh, after that, in, in the 1800s, uh, there was a town in Texas called Neyland, Texas. Look it up. Now, unfortunately, that town disappeared, and it exists no longer. But if you, I Googled it today just to make sure. It was a town at one time, and interesting enough, right next to it, a few miles away, was another town called Neylandville. Now, this was in the days of segregation, so as you might imagine, the white people lived in Neyland, and the black people lived in Neylandville. The good news is Neylandville still exists. So there you go. So uh, the other thing about my ancestry that uh, you may or may not know is we have lots of boys born in our family. And in fact, for several generations, I believe it's up to 14 boys in a row have been born. Uh, and so, you know, we, we name the oldest one Robert Reese, and then we have to be creative and come up with other names for the other children, right? And so uh, it's, it's really kind of strange. We don't know if there's some scientific reason for that. But uh, we're kind of excited about it. By the way, we, we do like women. Uh, we keep marrying them so we can produce more Neyland boys. <laughs> and we're kind of excited about this because we feel like if this will just continue for enough generations, you know, half the population of the U.S. might have the last name Neyland. So again, desperate attempt to be important. So hopefully, as we go on with our lesson today, you're going to understand why we started here. Because we want to talk about sort of our spiritual roots. We want to talk about our spiritual ancestry. And so we need to go to the Bible, Mark chapter 1. I think Alex is going to put the scriptures up for you. If you don't have a Bible, you don't want to look at them on your phone, you got the screen. All kinds of options here. So it's very interesting, and, and let me just say, by the way, probably none of the scriptures that I'm going to read will be new for many of you. Uh, they're probably going to be familiar, maybe not for everybody, but for most of you, they're going to be familiar. But I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to try to read them as if you're reading them for the first time. And try to let's try to take a fresh look at this. But uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 1, it says, after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, that's verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news. So he's just started, Jesus is about 30 years old, he's just started preaching. You know, he lived in relative obscurity his first 30 years in a little town of Nazareth. And then now he's starting to preach the word. And then it says something very important. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And if you read in John chapter 1, he, this wasn't the first time he met them. He had known them for at least a few months. And so he saw them there, and he said in verse 17, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So from the very beginning, Jesus had a clear plan of how his church 
would function. And he started with two disciples. And then right after that, you read about how James and John, two brothers, they all children, and there were four. And by the time you get to Mark chapter 3, Jesus had chosen the 12. And there were 12 of them. And if you read the whole rest of the account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're going to see is that Jesus spent most of his time with his disciples, with the 12. Does that surprise you? Jesus spent more time with the 12 than he did preaching publicly. He spent more time with the 12 than he did preaching to individuals. He spent more time with the 12 than he did healing and, and, and helping the poor or uh, sharing his faith as we talked about or any of those things, praying even. Now, a lot of those things he did, and those are very important things, but he did them with his discipling relationships. So he spent the most time with them. And he made them a promise here. He says, if you guys will hang with me, and you'll hang with me in this relationship, I'm going to help you be transformed into not somebody who just is a disciple, but somebody who makes disciples. I'm going to make you help you become a disciple maker. And so the story goes on. Look over in John chapter 13. And so now we're fast forwarding, and uh, it's a great story. And if you haven't read it in a long time, just get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out and just read through and focus about what Jesus did in his discipling relationships with the 12. It's a fantastic study. But he gets to chapter 13 of John. Now, while we're here, this is what we call the Last Supper. This is an extended recording of, for several chapters here, of conversations that Jesus had with the 12 on the night before he went to the cross. And so it's the Last Supper. And then Jesus says in John 13, verse 34 and 35, read it as if it's the very first time. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What we need to understand is that Jesus not only had a clear plan, disciples making disciples, but he had a clear methodology. He had a way to go about that. And you know what his focus was? You know what his method was? You know what his way was? It was the way of love. He said, love each other like I have loved you. And you go back and read the story, and it's so fascinating to see how Jesus loved. And that's the kind of love that we need to imitate in this church. It's a love that perseveres. It's a love that is patient. It is a love that is forgiving. It is a love that invests in other people. And it is a love that motivates. Nothing moves people like love. And so if there's anything I want you to understand tonight about discipling relationships, our one another relationships where we're helping each other to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, the most important quality that we all need to understand and we need to put into practice is we need to love. 
We can't emphasize that too much. People aren't projects to manage or problems to solve. Discipling relationships are not just important. They're not just a suggestion that Jesus would give us. It is the plan of Jesus for his church. He doesn't have another plan. And without discipling relationships, you know what happens to us? When you are not in discipling relationship, what is going to happen to you over time is you're going to become dry, dull, ineffective, stagnant spiritually, unattractive to a lost world, and unmotivated. We need each other. And I wonder if we haven't forgotten that. You know, when I stood up uh, just not so long ago on a Sunday morning and I spoke about the beginning of this revival, and I asked a question that I think we still need to ask ourselves, have we lost our way? And I'm going to tell you right now, the key to our revival is discipling relationships. We don't need better sermons. We don't need better music. We don't even need better people. Some of the most fantastic people I know or have known in my life are sitting in this room right now. You know what we need, though? Discipling relationships that will transform lives so that we become disciples who make disciples. Look over in uh, Matthew 28. There was a time in our church, some of you remember, where uh, you couldn't go more than three sermons without hearing Matthew 28. Am I right? You know, I got, I got to tell you, yeah, three is a whole lot. That's probably, yeah, I probably overshot it there, but... You know, there's, uh, there's a pretty good reason for that. And uh, if you haven't heard it preached lately or you haven't read it, I want you to know Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is still in the Bible. And if you haven't checked lately, here's your opportunity. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came, and of course this is now, we were previously at the Last Supper, Jesus is been crucified, he's been raised from the dead. It's just a few days later, he's about to ascend into heaven. Some would say his last words, Jesus came and said to them, talking about the disciples, the faithful disciples, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 18. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, in just three years, did you know that? In just about three years of investing in these 12, Jesus said, you know, it's okay 
I can go on home to be with the Father now, and I'm going to leave it all with you. And Jesus is saying, you're ready. Now, I'm pretty sure the 12 did not think they were ready. In fact, I know for a fact they didn't. You go back to the Last Supper and the conversation, you know, and Thomas was always the one, right? He's like, Jesus, well, I mean, if you leave, what are we, gonna, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know anything. Sometimes you feel like that, don't you? And when it comes to discipling relationships, you might feel tonight like you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to help somebody, but I guarantee you, if you become a disciple of Jesus, you know a lot more than you think you do. So Jesus says, you guys are ready. And you just got to put this uh, in some sort of context. So um, I asked myself a question. So what was the most radical thing that Jesus ever did? Think about that for a moment. I mean, Jesus was known for being radical, and there's supposed there are many things that you could come up with. But for me, the most radical thing that Jesus did was leave heaven, come to earth, live here, die on a cross for our sins, trusting that God the Father would raise him from the dead. That was pretty radical. But think about this. Perhaps the second most radical thing that Jesus did was this plan that he had for how he was going to change the world. He was going to take 12, Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says, known in their community to be unschooled, ordinary people. And he was going to spend three years with them. Now, there's a lot of us in here that have been around for a while, and we know three years is nothing. Three years goes by like that. What happened? Where did it go? And Jesus how radical is this? He said, you know, here's the plan. Here is the plan. I'm going to take 12 unschooled, ordinary people. Do we have any unschooled, ordinary people here today? Anybody who would care to admit it? See, the reason it's in there is because sometimes we're insecure. And sometimes we think we, we need special gifts. And sometimes we think we need to have a certain level of education. And sometimes we think we need to be at a certain you know, level of uh, whatever, you know, what we used to call sharpness. Jesus says, I'm going to take unschooled, ordinary people, and I'm going to love them for three years, and they are going to change the world. Now, if you know the story and you read the story, I'm sure there were several times along the way during this three years where Jesus was going, you know, I don't know if this was such a good idea. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, he's like, well, I don't know if I should have picked him. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, Peter, I hate to say it, I think we're going to need to go in another direction. <laughs> but no, that's the essence of discipling. You persevere. You keep believing. You keep loving. You keep caring. You keep investing. And sometimes, just to encourage you, I want to inspire you to reinvest in discipling. Because sometimes, 
when you're doing that for a while, it seems like nothing particularly good is happening. You ever had that experience? If there's anything this story tells us, is that we just need to keep on keeping on. Would that have been your plan? You're Jesus. For some reason, you only have three, world, three, three years to change the history of the world. And what's your plan going to be? I don't think I would have come up with this plan. And if I can speak frankly, I think some of us have decided that the plan doesn't work. Now, that's not based on the Bible, and it's not based on even recent history, but we have decided somehow that doesn't work anymore, so we're just going to let it go. One of the things that we're re reviving here, renewing, is discipling relationships. Real relationships, functional relationships, where people meet, where people share, where people are open, where people get help, where people are transformed. Way too many people, maybe even this room, don't even have discipleship partners anymore. Or you have discipleship partners, but you don't really meet very often, if at all. Or you have discipleship partners, and, you know, it's never, it's never really much of a spiritual focus there. It's just hanging out. And that's important. Hanging out's important. Les, you about ready? Whenever I am. Okay. Good answer, Les. I'm going to have Les come up and share a little bit because Les is a, you know, a wonderful brother, and he and I have been discipleship partners for uh, 15 years now. I'm sure he's been tempted to give up on me many times. <laughs> However, we have consistently met every Friday for 15 years, unless uh, one of us is out of town or something's going on, and it's a relationship that I treasure, I love, he's helped me immensely in my life, and we have the kind of relationship where we can share, and we can be real, and we can talk about what's going on, and uh, we really try to help each other be more like Jesus. So uh, give Les your attention as he shares for a few minutes. Les Callahan. Amen. Thanks, Reese. Feelings are definitely mutual. He's been a tremendous part of my life, and you know, as a, I've grown as a Christian and met him. Gosh, I think I actually met him before I moved here. Right before I moved here, over 18 years ago. Uh, no, 17. 17 years ago. So it's uh, it's been a great joy in my life to have Reese as a close friend. Amen. So I'm just going to share a few thoughts here. You know, I'm going to reference some scriptures more than have everyone turn to them for time's sake or expedience, but. I just want to share a few thoughts about discipling relationships and how, for me and my relationship with Reese and my experience through my 26 years of Christianity has really been about how relationships are about connection and how we stay connected with the body, connected with one another through relationships. And, you know, God has had men and women connecting for thousands of years. And I'll just reference a few that, you know, I know are familiar to everybody. Exodus 4, Moses and Aaron. You know, God had just, you know, Moses didn't want to speak. So he said, you know, Aaron's your, your brother. He's going to speak on your behalf. And so 
God would talk to Moses and then Aaron would talk to the people. And these guys were just intertwined. They were close. They were connected. Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth won. Ruth's relationship with Naomi was, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. There was a deep connection that these two shared. David and Jonathan, one of my favorites. 2 Samuel one twenty six. you know, when David received the news that Jonathan had died, he said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. You know, it just goes to show that there's a connection that we can have that transcends sexuality, that transcends family, that transcends anything else out there. There was a depth of their connection. There was a love that they had one for another. Elijah and Elisha, 2 Kings 2, again, Elisha says of Elisha, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And, of course, we have Jesus and John, and, you know, John puts a little plug in for himself. John 21, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? John had a great connection, a great love uh, in his relationship with Jesus. Amen? And as Reese mentioned, you know, he and I have had a relationship, a discipling partnership, really for about 15 years. Uh, we started meeting in 2003, uh, and there was just a bond that we created and a commitment we had made to one another that's really evolved over time and allowed us to become closer and closer, become really best, really becoming best friends. And I just want to share, you know, there, to me, there, there's really four steps in this connection. There's, there's four steps as this connection evolves in our relationships. And I think the first thing in connecting is really connecting in person. You know, Reese alluded to that earlier. You know, we, we, can, we can get on the phone with somebody, we can email somebody, we can text somebody, but there's really nothing quite the same as just meeting face-to-face, -face, right? You get to see their joy. You get to see their pain. You get to feel their sadness. You get to, you know, experience their hope, their encouragement. There's nothing quite like being face-to-face -face in your discipling time. You know, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, being together... It, it's been a chance for me to really share so many of the great things in my life, whether it's when my children are born, being able to share, you know, Robbie and Sarah when they were born and sharing that with Reese and having that, that elation, that, that excitement to share that with him and have that closeness. And also just the, the, the fear and challenge and trepidation of starting my own business. Many of you know I, I quit my job and started a business 14 years ago, you know, when my daughter was 10 months old. And, of course, right after I started, my wife gives me a little test for Father's Day, or a little gift for Father's Day, and I open it up, it's a positive test, number two's on the way. So ne needless to say, there was, there was fear, there was nervousness, you know, about how am I going to cope with life, I, you know, couldn't you have told me this before I quit my job, you know, but no, she decided to save it for that moment when I needed the most faith and connection with another person to help me through it. So we've laughed together, we've wept together, and we've just we've been there for one another through the peaks and valleys of our lives. I think the next step in connecting is really connecting in life, connecting in our interests. You know, I think that's just one of the most important things in connecting with one another, is just really going into each relationship, wanting to learn and to appreciate the interests of one another. You know, I think sometimes we, we just, we, we, we go in a little too shallow, and if we don't connect in that, that first easy way, then, oh, it's just not a great relationship. That's not the person for me. We just, we're just not there, you know. And I'm not talking about meeting together like that clinical connection, like, well, yeah, I met with brother so-and-so this week. We got our D time in. I can check that off the list. Or I met with sister so-and-so. I kind of did that this week. You know, but really connecting in a way that's genuine, 
a way that's sincere with the other person in mind. And to be honest with you, I don't think I ever watched much college football before I met Reese. You know, perhaps one of the things my wife regrets in my relationship with him. You know, he mentioned about, you know, Reese the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth, you know, etc. Uh, are you number 7, Reese? Is that right? So I think, so number 5 was the general. Number 5, his grandfather was the head coach at the University of Tennessee and a general in the U.S. Army. And, um, but it wasn't until uh, we actually had a chance to meet and, and learn about one another that, you know, I came to appreciate football and, you know, we'd have healthy discussions of our favorite teams and who we believed most, you know, most uh, that was going to be the, the, the most legitimate playoff contender. Unfortunately for Reese, my Irish have done a little better lately than the volunteers. But, but that's okay, that's okay. We encourage one another, we build each other up, we give each other hope and so forth. But, um, but we engage in conversations that really span every aspect of our lives, right? We're talking about our marriage, we're talking about our children, we're talking about our careers, our health, our fitness, just every aspect of our lives. As, as he mentioned, there, there's a time and a place for that. And that's not every time, but there's, there, that's an aspect of our connection. You know, and you might say, but I don't connect with sister so-and-so, or I don't connect with brother so-and-so you know, or we're so different. And I just want to ask you, you know, have you really approached them with an openness, with an honesty, with a desire to know and understand them? Or do you just kind of go into it thinking, well, they're not like me. They don't think like me. They're not on the same, you know, socioeconomic level. They're not the same political whatever as me. But are you really going in there wanting to connect with them and really not being put off by the shallow disconnects that so often keep us away from one another, but really pursuing the deeper matters of our hearts. Amen? Then there's connecting in openness. You know, there, there's just a vulnerability that's unmatched, you know, when we are open with one another about our lives, face-to-face, sharing with one another what's going on, you know, times when I'm able to share with Reese, you know, when, when I feel like someone's hurt me deeply or someone's sinned against me, or, or on the other side, when I've sinned against someone else, and I, I just need to be open, and I need help. You know, I did something that hurt my son, or my daughter, or my, or my wife, or any, any of you, or relationships that I've had, and I'm just like, bro, I gotta get together, I need help, I need to be open, and I need, I need some help navigating through this. You know, <coughs> and it, the, the great thing is that through our openness, we've really been able to find common ground, and, and honestly, we've probably found more ways that we're alike than ways that we're different. And I don't think we would have either, either one of us would have seen that or anyone would have seen that who knew both of us before we actually met one another. You know, he's tall, I'm not as tall. You know, <laughs> he plays basketball, I swam. You know, there's all kinds of areas you can see the differences or how we approach life differently or what have you. But, but really getting to know one another, we find the commonality because we had a genuine interest and desire to know and appreciate one another. And lastly, there's connecting and resolution. You know, Reese and I start our relationship, this is actually how we came together initially, was back in 2003, uh, a certain letter had come out that had stirred up some emotions in me. Some of you may have been around long enough to remember that, some maybe not. But, it, you know, I wasn't upset with Reese, but I, ju- I just needed some help processing, you know, some things that were, were, were shared and s- just some experience that I had, and, and I, I needed someone to help me navigate that and, and untangle this bowl of spaghetti of emotions that I had. 
You know, I don't remember even all the issues, but what I do remember is that I invited Reese over to my house for a cup of coffee, and I just said, bro, I just need to get together. I need help, you know. And I don't remember, like I said, all the issues, but what I do remember was Reese's response. You know, when I, when I went through each thing, item by item, one by one, I mean, there were only a few. He was humble. He was patient. He was completely honest and candid. And I think, honestly, it was the spirit of his response that helped me through these issues the most. He wasn't defensive. He wasn't prideful. He wasn't judgmental. But he sincerely wanted to help see me through the struggles that I was going through and help me get to a great place with God, with the church, and, you know, just with people in general that were around me and loved me. And, you know, and that being said, I don't, you know, there are moments that we haven't always appreciated one another, you know. I think when we got to challenge each other, when there's something that comes up even between us, we've had our own conflicts with one another. When I've done things that have hurt him specifically, and he's had to pull me aside and say, hey, that wasn't right, or that hurt me, and we need to get this resolved, or vice versa, when he said something that hurt me, and I had to challenge him and say, bro, I just, I didn't appreciate that. That really hurt me. You know, how can we get through this and get resolved? And, uh, and so there, there's just been a commitment to one another to hold each other accountable, uh, whether it's with one another, with any of you or other people in our lives, but just wanting us to, wanting to encourage each other and not, not let the sun go down in our anger. And we, we either commit to getting resolved that day usually or to have some definitive time plan on how we're going to get through this and find resolution in our relationships. You know, all relationships require work from time to time, you know, including some of the closest ones. But discipling relationships are really relationships based on connection. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a progression over time that really, I believe, involves many of these things. And I'll just, I'll just share a few, ref- I'll reference a few helpful hints from Scripture as I close. In Ephesians 4, you don't have to turn there. You know, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you know, be completely humble and gentle with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. He says, we, we will in all things grow up into him who's the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And I really believe these discipling relationships, this connection that we share with one, ado- with one another is really what helps us stay connected and helps us stand apart from the world. And he says, put off falsehood. Be honest about your life. Speak truthfully. We're all members of one body. We're all in the same boat. Let's be real. Let's be honest with one another. And lastly, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And I believe you'll make great connections with those around you and have a more fulfilling walk with God. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Les. Just a uh, few more minutes here. Go ahead and put that slide up, if you would, uh, Alex. So I don't have the monitor in front of me. There should be a slide behind me that has two book titles and a website. Is it there? Okay, so we're going to leave it up there for a few minutes. Maybe we can even leave it up a few minutes after church if people need it. But take a picture on your phone, write it down. I'm hoping that uh, these could be tools that could help you Because there's no way here in just a few minutes, right, that we could say all the things we want to say about discipling relationships. Uh, I want to end with uh, a story. And uh, 
It's maybe a story that you have never heard before. Uh, it answers the question, where did discipleship partners come from? Now, we know the concept came from the Bible, but where in our fellowship did that actually originate, and when did it originate? And uh, you may think you know, but you may not really know, because I'm going uh, to tell you the story. In 1963, the first book on this screen, a man named Robert Coleman wrote a book, that's a long time ago, 1963, uh, called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And in Christianity at that time, there was little or no concept of discipling relationships of the plan of Jesus or of anybody imitating it. And then he came out with this book. And it is a fantastic book, even though it was written 55 years ago. And by the way, he is uh, not a part of our church. He just got the Bible out and recognized something that we missed for so many years. And maybe you can relate to that, because a lot of us went to church, and a lot of us knew the Bible. And we came to this church, and it's the first time we'd ever heard or even considered that, oh, yeah, it was right there all along, Jesus discipling in his relationships. So in 1963, Robert Coleman wrote this book. Uh, Billy Graham said it was one of the most influential Christian books of the 20th century. As of 2014, over 3.5 million copies had been sold. If you want to get start all over with discipling and just start and get a refreshing look at it, just get this book and read it, okay? A few years later, a man named Chuck Lucas went as a young minister, went to the 14th Church of Street Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida. Later on, it became the Crossroads Church of Christ. It was a small church of about 100, and the traditional or mainline churches we know, they believe exactly what we do about baptism being important for the forgiveness of sins. They believe a few other things that uh, we can laugh about today. Uh, they did not believe in instrumental music. And uh, more importantly, they did not believe in dancing in or out of the church building. So anyway, there were other things. But so Chuck Lucas had graduated from Harding University, and he was a young minister, and he read Robert Coleman's book. And so he's showing up. He's new in town. They hired him to preach at this little church in this small town, Gainesville, Florida. And he decided, you know, I am going to try to put this into practice in my new ministry. So he chose three young college students. You may or may not know their names. Sam Lang, Bruce Williams, and J.P. Tynes. And so all those brothers are still today uh, serving the Lord in the ministry all these years later. He chose them, and they didn't know what was coming. And Chuck said, and in those days they called them prayer partners. Later on, it became known as discipleship partners. And the idea was he would meet with them individually each once a week, and he would meet with them collectively once a week. And they would do, try to do what Jesus did and get in each other's lives and really talk about growing and how to change. And uh, what happened is quite spectacular from that small beginning. Over the next 20 years, the Crossroads Church grew to be over 1,000, but even more importantly, during those 20 years, they trained and sent out over 100 people into the full-time ministry. Churches were planted. 
They went into existing churches, thousands of people who graduated from the University of Florida went out. When I go around the world now, especially the United States, of course, I hardly go anywhere and speak that I don't meet somebody who was from the Crossroads Church when I was there in Gainesville, Florida. I don't know if you know it, but we are everywhere. And then what happened was that a few years later, a man named Kip McKean was invited, was, uh, invited and baptized and trained and went out in the ministry. And then a few years after that, little old me, I came around. And there's a lot of other people that have done that and are still serving the Lord. And I'll tell you that story to show you that from humble beginnings, great things can happen. And, you know, a lot of you know that when I preach these days, I have one main point. And I always write it at the top of my page. And look, Can you guys read this? It's a little, uh, it's in a little bio. I'll read it for you then. You can't see that, Rob? Okay. So here's the point for tonight. We need to become a discipling church again. I'm not trying to be mean, but we have lost our way. Those of you who have been around a while, you know that it's true. Now, if you're new, you may not understand that. And all this may not sound, may sound strange to you. But here's the good news. We've lost our way. But here's the good news. It could change tonight. The good news is God is full of grace. You're still here. It's not too late. And you can decide tonight to reinvest in discipling relationships. And the challenge I give you is that every single one of us here there needs to be somebody that you're trying to make a disciple. And then there needs to be somebody in your life who's helping you to be a disciple. Now, those two people might be the same person. And that's great when you have mutually mature relationships and you can help each other. Sometimes, it, you know, it help goes one way more than the other. But everybody needs to be involved. It needs to be focused. It needs to be dedicated. It needs to be known. You ought to be able to write on a piece of paper right now who you are discipling and who you have a discipling relationship with and who is discipling you. And if you can't do that, you need to change that tonight. Get help from your small group. Get help from your ministry leader. I hope that we are ready to become a discipling church again. Because it is our roots. It is our ancestors. It's where we came from. We came originally from the ministry of Jesus, and more recently from the ministry that started at the Crossroads Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida, over 50 years ago. It's in our DNA. The opportunity is there. It's just there. It's time for us to take the opportunity that God has given us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this wonderful plan. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of it. We, many of us have been around a long time, and we shudder to think where we would be if there had been no discipling relationships in our lives. 
Where would our marriage be? Where would our kids be? Where would our character be? You know, where would our prayer life be? Where would our Bible study be? Where would our evangelism be? The list goes on and on. Thank you for the opportunity we have. We want to repent before you and pray for revival. That as a church, we will be inspired, motivated, and decide to become a discipling church again. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a good night.